after nearly two decades at the NIH, and almost 10 years as founding director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, NCATS, Christopher Austin is crossing over to the dark side, joining Boston-based flagship pioneering, the highly respected BioPlatforms Innovation Company. Chris Austin graduated with a degree in biology from Princeton in 1982 and received his MD at Harvard Medical School. He completed his clinical training in internal medicine and neurology at Massachusetts General. Chris, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, sir. How are you doing? Likewise, Dwayne. It's great to be with you. So you're leaving NCATS and you're joining a venture capital firm, the vermicious knids of the world. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Can you compare your roles and what you anticipate from NCATS to what you'll be doing at Flagship Pioneering? It's very exciting. Yeah, it is. It is really exciting. Um, in, in some ways, it's a matter of scale, you know, but I, I built what is now NCATS from nothing. I hired the first person there back in uh, in 2004. And, uh, and by the time I left, there were over 700 employees and a billion dollar a year budget. So it was an amazing ride. And now I'm back to this little company that I am the CEO of, which is one of the newest flagship companies that's actually still in stealth, <laughs> um, has 19 people. And either I will find a way to raise more money <laughs> or we will all go find some alternative employment. Uh, I hope the former. But just in the last two months since I've been there, some really interesting similarities and some obvious differences. The, perhaps the most striking thing is, is is are the similarities. So science is science is science, no matter where you go, and it is hard no matter where you go. And the institution that I started at uh, NCATS at at the NIH had a lot in common. Actually, it turns out with with flagship because they're both devoted to discontinuous innovation, disruptive innovation, if you want to call it that. Sure, and and that's very similar. Also, people are people, and people do some of the same dumb things, whether it's (laughs) and say some of the same dumb things, where they're in the the public sector, the private sector, the government sector. Uh, And so, you know, a lot of the people issues are all the same, and I've discovered some of those as well. Financially, of course, it's different. We do have to think much more regularly about where our next meal is going to come from. Whereas at NIH, there was always this question, but the, the, there was little question that whether NIH's budget was going to be maintained or not. And it was certainly never going to run out because uh, it got replenished by the Treasury every year. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, being at the NIH, one of the interesting aspects is you might say that I reported the director, uh, Francis Collins, but that would only be partially true. Actually, I had. Uh, 536 bosses at least. Wow. So every member of Congress, the president, and every member of the administration had a role in the say of what NCATS and other parts of NIH do. And that can be a very positive thing in some ways, but it also means that NIH is is subject to some of the same political wins that um, that we've seen elsewhere that um, are not always fact based. Sure. Uh, and yeah, what are you saying, Chris? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think the other thing which is different, and it's actually the the, the major reason I decided to make the jump. I mean, there are really two reasons. One is that I had built this amazing place at NIH that. Uh, like any good leader, I wanted to make independent of me. And I had this amazing senior leadership team. Everything was in place. Everybody drunk the Kool-Aid. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do. So I started looking for the next burning building to run into. Uh, And by burning building, I mean urgent and transformational biomedical and health idea. Sure. But the other is that, you know, NIH is a wonderful place in creating the ecosystem in which scientific discovery flourishes. If you think of gardening analogies, I'm a gardener, so I think this way. NIH is focused on the soil, the organisms, the seeds that are in the soil. And if that's not a fertile environment, nothing's going to grow. Sure. But it doesn't actually grow the crops that feed the people, or in other words, make do the hard work of the farmer to actually make the vegetables and the fruits that real people will consume. 
and I wanted to do that for this, this part of my career, you know, and it gets at this subject that we may want to talk about, which is, you know, which is, which is more important, the soil in which the plant grows or the plant? And any gardener knows that is an absurd question because one without the other is dead. It, but, but we're in this argument now where NIH is arguing, well, we do the soil, therefore uh, we, we do everything. And pharma at times says, well, we, you know, we harvest the crops and we, we grow the crops and we spray them with antifungals and we do all the things, keep them alive. Therefore, we do everything. But they're growing in soil that came from the NIH. Correct. And both parts are equally important fundamentally, and one cannot exist without the other. Exactly. And that's why our biomedical ecosystem in this country has been so outsized productive, because historically there's been an understanding that these two are interdependent, interlinked, mutually symbiotic, interdependent, any word, whatever word you want to use. It's a virtuous cycle. There's a lot there I'd like to unpack. First, let's define NCATS a little bit too, because- Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously I know what it is and a lot of our audience are learning, but we also have a big international audience as well. Sure, sure. Can you describe what advancing translational sciences- Yeah, yeah. What, were you, what was the goal and what were you trying to do? It was and is a really big idea, which is to question the very assumptions under which- current therapies are developed and disseminated. What I mean by that is, is for practical purposes, the ecosystem has largely accepted tacitly, uh, I don't think consciously, but tacitly, they certainly have done this, that the absurdly unproductive numbers, uh, failure rates, costs, uh, time of therapeutic development and dissemination which depending on how you do, who you believe, takes between 20 and 30 years to go from an idea to getting it to all the people who need it. 30 years. Yeah. That is immutable. We, will, we can never get better. And I find that absurd. But most people don't even question what we're talking about. So what translational science does is looks at the lack of scientific understanding and the lack of operational understanding, which leads to failure at multiple stages of this process and then develops innovations which ameliorate that cause of failure, whether it's scientific or operational, with the goal of increasing overall productivity of the process by 10 to 100-fold. Sure. This is in stark opposition to the shots on goal idea. Uh, and that's the conventional idea that there is no way to increase productivity. So the only way to do that is just to, to shoot twice as many goals. We have no idea what the goal is. We don't even know what the goal is, but if we could just shoot enough of them randomly, will something will end in that. If I could say not even twice as many, but 10 to the power of seven, if, sometimes if you're doing high throughput screening, I mean, huge numbers. Oh yeah. Huge well numbers. those, yeah. And it's, and overall, you know, the goal of translational science is, to transform this process of making diagnostics and therapeutics that improve human health, transform that process from what it has historically always been, which is a failure-prone, empirical, trial-and-error process into a predictive science. It's turning this process, if I might be a bit pejorative, from astrology <laughs> to engineering. And NCATS is the only organization on the planet whose mission that is. And I still find that fascinating. It is such a huge problem. And the potential translational science solutions will unlock are so enormous sure. that you think everyone would understand what the issue is. And everybody would say, this is really the way to do this. We're not going to throw you know, another $2 billion against what uh, disease X or disease Y or disease Z, the causes of failure are the same across all those diseases. So it would make much more sense to fix the system that would then lift all boats, make everybody more productive, public and private. That's the goal of translational. So you're taking these tools now to flagship pioneering. Yeah. And you were bringing up the point that you're now at the other end 
of the value chain from where you were at yeah. the front end trying to yeah. take the soil and develop the assets. Now you're in the mass production of <laughs> the cantaloupes after they've grown in the soil. Yeah. Um, yeah. People are saying that it's the NIH, the soil that's solely responsible mm -hmm. because everything grows in the soil, as it were. I, I suppose you could also make the analogy because everything is transported on the federal uh, freeway system that anything that travels on, you know, I-10 or I-40 or I-80 then is also owned by the government. You can make a similar argument. Yep. Why do you think this mentality is developing around this idea that society pays twice? It's the NIH that's responsible. Biopharma industry is free riding. Where, where do you think this is coming from? It's, it's a central question. It's something that I talked and wrote a lot about when I was at NCATS and I plan to continue. I, I wrote a, I got so frustrated about this issue once that I I wrote a two-piece, a uh, little perspective piece in Nature Reviews Drug Discovery called Translational Misconceptions. <laughs> and it starts with the famous Mark Twain quote that it ain't the things that people know that aren't true that get them into trouble. It's the things they think they know that are wrong. That ain't so. <laughs> that ain't so. Yep. And our field is full of people who know things, know things, and act on them that ain't so. And they are unteachable right. for a variety of reasons. Part of this, if I could use another one of my favorite quotes from Upton Sinclair, he said, you know, it's impossible to teach a man something if his salary depends on his not understanding it. Right. <laughs> and so, so we have these parts of the ecosystem who grow bigger by perpetuating, let's just call them what they are, myths, f factual misconceptions. They're, they're, they're just wrong. I think so. Where does this come from? Well, I think it's it traditionally many things. Uh, traditionally, the industry, uh, biopharma industry, was fairly secretive about what they did. Um, still is uh, for, but but much much different than when I got into this thirty years ago. And so there really has not been a knowledge of what goes on in these places. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? So if, sure. if there is no information, people make something up which fits their current worldview. And so I do lay some of this at the feet of the biopharma industry, uh, who 20, 30, 40 years ago, when they were, uh, they, their respect and trust in the society was much higher, they could have gone to some lengths to not take that for granted, but to really educate people about where drugs come from. Because I find that even the most, with rare, rare exceptions, even the most highly educated, uh, highly positioned scientists, doctors, policymakers do not know where drugs come from. They have magical thinking in their head, frankly, sure. of, of how this happens. But they're so sure that it frankly benefits at least a lot of them who are paid in the current system. The other thing that you know, my colleague at flagship, Mike Rosenblatt, has pointed out is the word we use, drug discovery. It's an interesting word, right? To the, right. To, to the average person, discovery means something that, you, that is a one-time event. A eureka moment. A eureka moment. And it's like what the people panning for gold in the, in the gold rush did. You discover this gold nugget that then you go and sell. The public has this idea because of the language we've been using that this is a one-time event. So therefore, it either happens in NIH or it happens in a company. It can't happen twice. You can't find the gold nugget twice. But that is completely incorrect description of where drugs and devices and behavioral interventions come from. The words we're using uh, are a real problem too. Pfizer came out so quickly. Yep. By September 30th, they'd already publicly announced on, on our webinar that they'd just completed the second round of their trial. So already at that point, they were being very public about the, the fact that they're willing to say that on the record meant that the data was good. <laughs> you know, they're not going to come out and say that at that point. But what people also forget, Curevac, yeah. which has the mRNA yeah. patents, they just yeah. failed. This is hard stuff. Yes. You know, even if you have the technology, even yeah. if it works in the lab in the Petri dish and you know you can do it, sure. actually scaling it up in manufacturing is fraught with peril. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think people don't get that? Well, how can we do better there, Chris? Well, the, the people who talk most about this and who are most respected, you know, in the field, which are, you know, academic scientists, you know, if you always go to an academic and, and you ask them, 
whether this is hard or not, they will generally say, well, not really. Why? Because they've never done it. Sure. I was once sitting in a room with a um, very high level conversation among some investors. And this is back when I was at NIH and and, uh, some families who have a disease and and uh, and a couple of a couple of Nobel laureates just thrown in for good measure. Yeah, yeah. yes, as one does. Yeah, yes. right. Okay. I mean, that's a, it's a it's a hard one, but you know, I, I try I try to put up with it. And this Nobel laureate, who's a brilliant man and and has made incredible contributions to basic science, was trying to explain what I do as a translational person. And he said, you know, it's really important what he does, but what he does has all the creativity of running a Toyota factory. <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> you didn't punch said Nobel laureate, sir? I mean- <laughs> well, he was a little old, so I thought that would be... Yeah. Ex- okay. But he, he he wasn't meaning to be offensive. Of course not. He actually believed what he said. Wow. Because he doesn't know. Of course. This is something that you run into over and over. In this field, and in academic medicine particularly, people who become expert at one thing believe that they know a lot or everything about another thing, which is totally unrelated. It you know, would be like saying, well, because I'm a good tennis player, I must be a good football player. Well, no, they're two different sports. But that is the conceit of the academy, frankly, that you find over and over and over again, which is really curious. I've always found it curious because you know, academic scientists are, are curious beasts. They're always wondering about things they don't know. Okay. But the problem is they think they understand it and they don't. <laughs> I, I think the other issue, which I've, I've always found interesting, is that, you know, one of the successes of fundamental science over the last 50 years, and they are incredible advances, is the era of scientific reductionism and what that has brought, meaning that we are going to look at simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler systems as a basis to understand how our world works. And the Genome Project's a perfect example. Sure. We were reducing everything down to an ACTG, and uh, we're looking at electron microscopes, or looking at cells, or looking at all these things. And what that's done is it's created an academic hierarchy where the people on the top of the, the food chain, uh, intellectually, work on the simplest systems. Where they work on on genes or bacteria or cells, and, and I'm being this gross generalization here now. And the publications from that kind of science end up in the highest impact journals. The highest impact journals people are the ones who get tenure and end up becoming deans and Nobel laureates. Right. However, there was an assumption that if we took Humpty Dumpty, we could put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And it was just an assumption. So the number of people actually studying these phenomena in people, not in a model organism, not in a fish or a fly or a worm or a rat or a mouse or a monkey or anything else, but in a person, that number has decreased dramatically over my lifetime. So we've had people who becoming increasingly reductionist, has told us a lot of basic stuff, have made the assumption that human physiology is really quite simple. It's just an accretion of you know trillions of the individual cells that they're studying and the academic cachet of human-based research is simply not there. It's very hard to make a career being an academic human clinical scientist. It's really funny you mentioned that. We did a podcast last week with Jack Scannell, arguably one of the best analysts on the planet. And he was really drilling into this point that where we have good effective models that predict human biology, Mm -hmm. monoclonal models that are very accurate for monoclonal antibodies, we get great drugs. Where we don't have accurate models, where the mouse model doesn't actually apply very well to humans, and we try to substitute high throughput screening, we get very sketchy clinical trials. And that's a really interesting point. Do you think AI or some of these buzzwords are going to get over this? Yeah, they they are going to help. There's no doubt about it. And at NCATS, my old institution, as well as where I am now, we are putting a lot of, uh, of emphasis in that area. However, this idea that AI will substitute for human judgment, like with the Watson program at IBM, I think it's not going to be the most productive way to go. I think what it's going to be is a very effective way to augment human capacities. Sure. Because a computer has a lot more a lot more processors than a human brain does. And so uh, I like the word machine learning. Yeah. They will have 
a benefit. And so why? Human physiology, as it turns out, is unbelievably complicated. <laughs> and it's not just a matter of putting a trillion you know, individual cells together. Uh, there are these so-called emergent properties, which, which only exist in more complex systems. But somewhere along the line, we forgot that model organisms are models. Correct. They are not the thing. But the field doesn't think that way. The field, it believes if it works in a mice, mouse, it's going to work in a person. And of course, factually, that's just not correct. Up until recently, you know, what was the alternative? You know, we didn't have alternatives. I mean, 30 years ago when I was training, you know, we, we had all the cell lines we used were these weird cancer-derived cells, you know, cell lines. You know, we had we had mice, but we couldn't even we couldn't even engineer them because transgenic mice hadn't been <laughs> created yet. And knockouts had just been created. And so we couldn't make even mouse models, which were very predictive. And the cells we had weren't very predictive. Furthermore, we couldn't make what we really wanted, which were uh, little humans in a dish because that that's what you'd want. Right. But just over the last 10 years through the leadership of NCATS um, primarily, but also from DARPA and, and other institutes at NIH now, this tissue chip program has really flourished. And that uh, the idea there is that we have to be able to predict human responses better because I'm sure, as Jack said, you know, 90% of compounds that go into human clinical trials are never approved because even though they worked on all the preclinical models, Nine times out of 10, they're either toxic in humans, although they weren't in the models, or they don't work in humans, even though they did it in the models. So what that tells you is your model isn't any good. Yeah. So wouldn't it make sense now to try to build little uh, multicellular human cell-based bioreactors to represent every human organ and use those to assess uh, disease physiology, efficacy, and toxicity instead of doing it in a mouse with one human gene. Now, there are limitations to this, as you might imagine, with any technology there are. But it's the kind of example of a really out-of-the-box thinking that has completely rewritten the rules of the game when it comes to understanding uh, human physiology. But, but I think the, the thing it really is going to require is a bigger cultural change. Our academic and university systems and, and the NIH, you know, who funds the academics in the universities? The NIH does. You know, and I love my colleagues at NIH, but they are mainly the same kind of reductionist scientists that, you know, have made a lot of amazing discoveries, but but they also are not clinical research to a great degree. I'd like to pick up on this because you were mentioning that where you did have success developing new models of some sort of a DARPA model. Yeah. And what we have now is a the Biden administration has proposed you know, a $6.5 billion program along the DARPA model, ARPA-H, whatever we want to call it. Oh, yeah. They're focusing more on the drug discovery side, sort of stepping more into the... Yeah you know, in the supply chain side and getting out of the soil. Yeah. What we've been talking about now, which is really interesting, is sort of what Jack was saying a week ago and what you're saying now is where potentially this could bear real good fruit mm -hmm. is if we move this further upstream and develop diagnostic models, predictive mm -hmm. models sure. that actually would be more accurate, that would raise everybody's yeah. votes. I agree with what you're saying. I, th I think uh, just as it was with NCATS, which had exactly the same mission, frankly, in verbatim, the same words are being used sure. for ARPA-H. When NCAS was formed 10 years ago, you may remember there was a lot of concern uh, that, in my view, was appropriate, that NIH was going to try to build a drug discovery capacity that was going to be better than pharma. I think that is wrong for two reasons. One, what pharma does, pharma does really well. The problem is there are a lot of things that pharma simply can't do because of the risk profile and their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to give them a return, a commercial product that will give them a return in a reasonably short period of time. Or, or to even just to stay in business as you're finding. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But the other reason is, you know, we all know these terrible numbers, you know, $2 billion, 99% yeah. failure rate takes 15 years. Why? In heaven's name, would NIH want to duplicate a system that is 99% failure? Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense. So what I said when NCATS was formed, uh, you know, 10 years ago, uh, when I became director, 
the first person I went to visit was John Licklider. You probably remember who <laughs> used to be the, the head of R&D at Lilly yeah. and went to a bunch of pharmas to tell them what we were actually planning on doing, which are these understanding and technology to lift all boats. And it would apply to everybody, uh, public and private, but that I wanted their partnership because they can tell me where a lot of the, the problem areas are. And so I didn't want to do it in a vacuum. And I knew that my academic colleagues, who I love dearly, have never done this, so they're not going to know. So we needed them on the team, and it was a wonderfully beneficial relationship. But yeah, I think that's, that is what ARPA-H should do. NIH and the federal government in general, you know, it is a wonderful research engine. And we have the privilege of not having investors. We do have investors, it's called the American people, the taxpayers, but they don't require a short-term commercial return. There's no commercial imperative. And that allows you to do science that you simply cannot do in the private sector. And that's really what, what ARPA-H ought to focus on. However, in my view, it can't be the same old, same old as has been the case with NIH, you know, I'm generalizing here, but every place except NCATS, frankly, because the NCATS mission was on purpose different. Sure. So you don't want ARPA-H simply duplicating the kinds of things that, and the kind of management, the kind of expectations uh, that NIH currently has. And you also, again, though I love my colleagues dearly, they frankly do not understand that they do not understand. <laughs> so as a result, you can't expect if you give all this money to the NIH proper, that it will be able to conceptualize what the problems are that will lift all those boats. They will spend the money and they will do wonderful things. Sure. Six and a half billion dollars. You know, you better do something useful with it. But if we think about that as a catalyst a catalyst which, you know, by definition, increases productivity by multiple fold, tenfold. That's really what the purpose of ARPA-H ought to be. It ought to be a catalyst, not the bulk reagents, not the product. Now, the one exception here, but I don't hear this being talked about with ARPA-H, is the whole area of diseases which are too risky for the private sector to work on because of their prevalence. And, and we're talking about uh, you know rare diseases, uh, orphan diseases. Now, there's a lot of activity in orphan diseases, and it's wonderful. But you probably heard me say this, that at the current rate of progress, it will be 2,000 years before there is a treatment for every disease. The other problem, Chris, is the disease prevalence. Yeah. 85% of orphan drugs are less than one in a million prevalence. Exactly. Yes. If you're in Europe, where I live in Belgium most of my time, if you're less than one in a million, that means your total population is 500 people in Europe. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, the economics get pretty tough at that point as a company. So then that requires you to say, okay, you know, you're not going to change the biology. You're never going to have a company working no. on this. There's just no commercial. There's no business model. No, none. What do we do? Do we just say those kids don't matter? SOL? No, of course we don't. We say there's got to be a different model. What is that model? And I think there, to me, it's becoming quite obvious what those models ought to be. And, you know, we could talk about them if you're interested. Well, sure. I mean, what do you see there? Let's say we're looking at an ultra rare orphan, one in a million, again, which are 85%, according to recent research of the, of the targets. No, that's right. How do we develop that? One of the most gratifying things, and I'll get to the answer to your question, but I'll give you a background. Sure. One of the most gratifying things I had the opportunity to do in my 20 years at NIH is to work with my colleagues at the FDA. And the FDA gets, you know, it's hard for them to catch a break because they're either too hard or too soft, right? You know, they, <laughs> they're either a sieve or they don't let anything through. And but, but we'll leave aside comments on the recent Alzheimer's decision. Yeah, right. No comment today. Yeah, right, okay, exactly. fine. <laughs> but, but, but they are really quite amazing scientists. In my last couple of years at the NIH, I had the privilege to help uh, run a project which should be public in the next very short period of time, which was developed with Peter Marks, who is the head of the uh, Center for Biologics at the NIH, uh, sorry, it's at FDA. And it was something called the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium. So first I had to ask Peter what the heck bespoke means. Well, it's like London tailoring. It's a custom suit, basically. Yes. That's where it comes from. <laughs> yes. So the idea here is that in, in the, if these kids, by that analogy, can't fit into 
the suits that are mass produced and where you and I go to Joseph A. Bank and get our uh, get our suits. Speak for yourself. Well, you know, I, you're, you're probably a brother's man. But, no, but seriously, you know, the idea, is there a way to industrialize the process, if you will, or rethink the process of genetic therapy development that would address the so-called long tail of rare diseases, uh, as you're saying, that have very low prevalence. And that's what bespoke means. Bespoke is not N of one. Sure. It's, it's really meant to be a N of few. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about. So the extreme here, uh, well, I, I give you two things. One is, you know, current gene therapy vectors are mainly viruses. They're, they're modified adeno-associated viruses, fairly harmless all by themselves. But if you if you eviscerate them, take all their DNA out, they're really harmless. And you put in the gene that you want. And uh, that's the backbone on which the SMA therapy and this blindness therapy was developed. And they can work quite well. There are problems, but they can work quite well. The idea is, well, gosh, you know, for these rare diseases, could we take a couple of those AABs, which will soon be off patent, and develop all of the CMC work, all of the, the assays, the manufacturing, the release assays, uh, the CMC that's done uh, for these vectors, and then make all of that protocol public. The recipe is public. And then the FDA says, as long as you use one of these vectors Interesting. that we have put through, I don't know what it'll be, 5, 10, 20 diseases and shown that we get reproducible you know, efficacy and patterns of toxicity, then as long as you pull one of those off the shelf, put your gene in it, the only thing you have to tell us, you have to show us target-related tox, the gene-related tox. But most of the tox comes from the virus vector, not from the gene itself. And that would drive the time and cost down by more than tenfold, probably more like a hundredfold. So that's how we started. And that project is ongoing right now. Not only does it decrease the cost tenfold of the assets that come to market, but that goes through the whole portfolio, even the failures too. Yeah, sure. So it's a multiplicative sure. savings that goes right. across the whole portfolio non-linearly. It becomes huge savings potentially, yeah. gigantic. So then you think, well, gosh, you know, hmm, could you apply that to other, that model to other genetic therapies? And first of all, we have to understand what a genetic therapy is. It's not only gene th conventional gene therapy that is a full-length gene transported into patient cells. They still have their defective genes. They've got their two copies of their usually of defective gene. And then you put a third one on top of that that is the normal gene, and it, it substitutes for the lack of gene activity that they have. And, and that's full-length gene therapy. And that's what we've been talking about. But there are other technologies, such as ASOs, antisense oligonucleotides or morpholinos. So there's a variety of flavors of these, which can serve as molecular band-aids, which sit down on parts of DNA and cover up mutations. And the cell, therefore, doesn't see the mutation and skips over it. And that's the basis of Spinraza. Sure. And that technology. Uh, was used by a neurologist in Boston named Tim Yu to uh, treat a little girl named Mila who had a form of Batten disease that was essentially a personal mutation in CLN7 gene. And they used the Spinraza recipe and got a custom oligo developed for this little girl in about a year. But the reason it took that long was all of the CMC and tox and all that stuff they had to do. You already know the, se the sequence. You know where the disease is. You know where the gene is. You know what the mutation is. You know what the sequence of the oligo is. And making these things are absurdly cheap. You know, you can buy milligrams of these things as PCR primers. So the problem is all of the pharmacology and all of the CMC. But to a great degree, it ought to be generic. And so we started a project, an analogous project, to say, well, gosh, you know, what is the general recipe? for making these oligos and doing all the CMC manufacturing talks that you'd have to do to give FDA confidence that if you have this kind of genetic mutation, and there's about 1,800 diseases that have the kind of mutation that would be amenable to this therapy, you could go from identifying the mutation in the individual person, including N of one mutation, so-called personal mutations, 
to a treatment in a matter of months or weeks even, in, in the same way that, that Moderna did. Right. Because they knew what the sequence was. Right. So that allows you to do many diseases at a time. And that's really what NCATS was focused on, either via the platform or via this ASO approach. Now, the ultimate, which I don't want to get you salivating too much here, <laughs> is in so-called gene edit. The CRISPR-Cas9, things like that. Right. So what does that do? Well, that doesn't it doesn't do either of what the previous ones, right? So a full-length gene therapy, you still got the bad ones, you put one on top, fine, it compensates. The molecular band-aid, the ASO, still there, but you cover it up with an ASO. This one is a spell checker, that it actually goes in and fixes the misspelling in your genes. And when that happens, it's done. And it turns out that it is possible uh, through the efforts of largely NIH-funded research, uh, looking at not only that's where CRISPR came from, of course, but also from people like David Liu sure. uh, at Harvard and MIT, uh, looking at these base editors, it turns out that it's possible to develop molecular base editors that can go in and recognize what the nature of the mutation is and fix it. So now just imagine what's going on. We know DNA has four possibilities, right? ACTG. And so they can be turned into any of those, mm -hmm. right? ACTG. So A could be turned into CTG or whatever. Those are, but there's a fixed number, 16 different kinds of mutations you can have, but it's a limited number. Every single mutation which causes a rare disease or a risk for a common disease is one of that small number of changes. And because there are now these molecular machines known as base editors, which allow you, at least in cells, in one example, in a mouse, to be able to fix that, then you can say, show me every single human disease with any mutation, classify it into one of these discrete number of changes, A to T, G to C, you know, in all the different combinations, discrete number in the teens. And depending on what you have, we will give you that gene therapy, that gene editor. And it does not matter what the gene is, it doesn't matter what the disease is. You could have two completely different diseases caused by mutations in completely different genes. These technologies don't care. They will fix it no matter what it is. It's like, you know, in your word checker, you know, if you misspell received, which many of us do, you know, we forget that I before E except after C, yeah. you know, it will find every place, no matter what the word is, that you messed up your I to E and it will fix them. Now, what that does is it allows every molecular disease, Mendelian disease now, at least, but every person who has different mutations to get treated with potentially 20 different medicines. Right. I mean, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing when you think about this. And, it, and if people are asking, what the heck is this guy talking about? And why is this so different? It's that the drug development that you and I know and love is based on interacting with proteins. And proteins are the effector arm that Mother Nature uses. Uh, but, of course, the proteins are coded for in your DNA. And then, of course, the mRNA is the messenger between the DNA and the protein. But, but we've always focused on proteins. And for some diseases, you've got to do that. Sure. There's just no way around it. And we never had a way to identify the, the mutations, much less fix them, at either the DNA level or the RNA level. But it turns out since the original... I could use the term, the original sin is not in the protein, it's in the RNA, it's in the DNA. And the DNA has a much more limited number of ways that it can be messed up. With proteins, it's almost infinite number. Sure. And that's why small molecules are so devilishly difficult to develop. Really, a lot of them have been. Of course, that's what most drugs are. But, but that's why it's possible to go from disease to disease to disease and why this future would be could be one of editing out the badness in the DNA rather than trying to target the particular protein of the particular disease. But the business model that you're talking about then is almost it's almost like a royalty model in, in copyright yes. where yep. you have it's almost like doing a cover version of a song. Yep. Essentially you have the cover versions owned by the original copyright holder yep. and then you can go off and use that you can make a cover version if you pay the mechanical royalties the flat right. rates right. to the original copyright holder as long as you follow you don't fundamentally change the technology you can yep. use that. Yep. So there's a whole it's a whole different world. A whole different business model. Yeah. And that's what we and others are thinking about. And, you know, the, 
You know, there's this saying in in uh, in biologics and genetic therapies that the process is the product, and this is CAR T therapies in some yeah, way. Yeah, 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 same idea. Exactly, where it's a supply chain, and that's where the intellectual property will come from. I mean, this is the interesting thing. You know, conceptually, you know, we're so used to thinking about an API, active pharmaceutical ingredient, as being the thing you patent, and that is true with a small molecule. But but when you think about gene therapy especially full-line gene therapy, the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredient is the gene. And you can't patent the gene. The gene is the gene. Right. The IP is in the carrier. It's in the suit. The process that you develop. And the processes you have. Correct. So, you know, we we all know that, you know, process chemistry and scale up of small molecules can, can also be very, very difficult. And expensive. <laughs> and expensive, right. But it, it is relatively well worked out. Sure. Uh, these issues in genetic therapies, particularly in, in virus development, are in the Stone Age. I worked on gene therapy vectors when I was a postdoc in the late 80s. And the technologies we use to isolate vectors, retroviral vectors at the time, in my case, are essentially the same ones that are used commercially these days. They haven't changed at all in 35 years, 40 years. But this is what's so fascinating about mRNA, Chris, because now we actually have yeah. a- Yeah, 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 exactly. Now yeah. we have a delivery vector that could, yeah. you know, because you're right, with Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, we are seeing potential viral vectors that yes. are actually driving these things. And this yep. has been going on now, but it's sort of been like, yeah, okay, great. What are we going to do about it? Well, nothing now, yes. but maybe we'll get there. Yes. But now we potentially have that. We've gotten there, yes. maybe. Yes. Yes. And that's what's really exciting. So what we, we do, maybe even through vaccination, then have a way to deliver this. Yes. I'd I'd like to bring this back a little bit to the ARPA-H DARPA yeah. conversation we were having a little earlier. Yeah. We met because we showed you the research we'd done where we'd looked at 24,000, a small number of NIH grants, 24,000 yes. grants. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we had a little bit of work, we'd, little work we'd done on, as a hobby. Uh, <laughs> one of the things we, we found, though, is when we traced that whole intellectual property value chain creation mm -hmm. to the actual product coming to market was... Whilst, you know, NIH was in all of, and very much so, in all of the patents that came out of that by the 8,000 patents that then ended up in products in mm -hmm. one way or another. Mm -hmm. What was interesting is when the industry wasn't there, when the private sector, when private funding was zero, mm -hmm. so when it was only government funding, there was zero probability of that asset coming to market mm -hmm. zero literally yep. statistically it was zero but yet as the percentage of funding from the private sector became larger and larger until it got over 90 percent at that point you have almost a 50 50 probability of market entry once you're over 90 percent yep. when the vast majority of the funding is coming from the private sector that asset does come to market or has a very good chance of coming to market why are we ignoring these aspects in some of the rhetoric that's coming out of the Congress. Why are we not dealing with the fact that it is this continuum of, yeah. you know, NIH then brings this and then it really is the private sector, you know, and the things we're talking about, these interesting biotechs with the ERNA and all these things, you know, it's really, it's taking that out of the lab and then putting it somewhere where it can develop and grow and be nurtured and then commercialized. Yeah. Why are we missing that? Because that obviously statistically is what's driving the bus here and they're both important. Why are we ignoring that? Well, first of all, the, the finding that you had, I didn't find surprising at all. Probably many people would, but I, I, I don't find I didn't find it surprising at all because having been in both public and private sector, I have a very clear view of what each one does and what each one does remarkably well. But they do different things, and I think one of the the problems that we haven't managed to overcome is that there is an information inequality when it comes to people in the public sector and the private sector. That is to say, everybody, you know, if there are these two pieces, and I think we agree there are two pieces which are mutually dependent, symbiotic, all those good things. Everyone who is, is in a biotech or a pharma has come from academia. So they know what academia does. That's where you go and get educated. Sure. And many of us have spent a lot of our career in academia. So we understand it. We understand not only what they do, but the cultures, the, the incentives, the reward systems, everything. Now ask yourself, how many people have the opposite experience? That is, how many academics crossed over the other way? Yeah, have been in the other world. That number is amazingly small still. And when you have that kind of information mismatch, it's almost an unfair competition because one side knows two things and the other side knows one. 
So just imagine that we have languages here, because I think it's an apt analogy. What we're talking about is being bilingual, and I consider myself bilingual scientifically. You know, I can speak academic. I can sound just like a professor, and I love that stuff. That's where I got my start. <laughs> but I can also talk biotech or pharma or business and the activities, the science, the whole areas of science which exist in pharma, which do not exist in academia. Right. Most people don't realize that. The incentive structure, the, the financing, all of that are very different. So I speak scientifically two languages. Most of my colleagues speak one language. So now just imagine that in order to get to a third language, which is a product, you got to be able to go from English to French to Spanish. You want to be in Spanish. The people who only speak English are not going to be able to understand the people who are talking French. And they're going to discount what's said because they don't understand it. And then they're surprised that the people who only speak English can't get to Spanish because they can't get through the French. And so they assume, well, if I do English, Spanish appears, therefore I must be responsible for all the, the language that comes out in Spanish. And so I've spent a lot of time working on this concept of bilinguality and the fact that if we're going to have a functioning ecosystem, we have to have much more of a study abroad kind of model. Right. So, you know, if you're going to learn a new language, you don't just sit in the classroom and learn about it. You go live there. You know, you learn the, the vernacular, the word use and the culture and the history and all that stuff. And then you can be a translator. Sort of a take your scientist to work week. Or something like that. You know, have I tried to get internships yeah. and we did do this, you know, where we would take uh, trainees and put them in, in a pharma for a while, have them experience this. You know, I, I had I had this interesting conversation with this friend of ours that we both know and, and are so fond of, Lena Skirball, yeah, of course. who was at the NIH for many, many years, over two decades, and, and finished as the, the head of policy at the NIH and the office of the director, reporting to Elias Sirhuni. And so she made many, many, many decisions and talked about a lot of things, exactly what we're talking about here. What is the relationship between public and private sector and making products? What is the proper role of government in this whole process? And then when, when Elias went to be head of research at Sanofi, he recruited Lana to come with him. And both of them uh, afterwards, uh, both Elias and, and, and Lana, Lana, uh, somewhat more colorfully, uh, <laughs> given her personality, said, you know, I would shoot my mouth off all the time and say things like where drugs come from. I had no idea. So I couldn't be accused of being disingenuous because I just didn't know. And people tried to teach me, but it wasn't until I got to Sanofi, I realized, oh my God, this is a totally different world. I had exactly the same experience when I went from Harvard to Merck. You know, at Harvard, they teach you, you know, everything. So I got to Merck. Merck knew <laughs> so much more than I do. It wasn't, it wasn't even a fair contest. But very, very, very few people in the public sector and none of our policymakers, none have had that experience. And without that experience, explaining this to people is like trying to explain to a colorblind person what color is. I just had a really interesting situation last week where I was briefing a very prominent person on the Hill who shall remain nameless. Yeah. And I pointed out that governments in Europe are using the threat of confiscating IP uh, yes. to try and drive down pricing. Another brilliant idea. Brilliant yes. idea from the Europeans. Yes, thank you, Europe. What was fascinating is this is a very, very well-respected, educated person who's driving legislation on the Hill who looked at me and said, I was completely unaware this is going on. Yep. These fallacies are becoming regulated. The, the people are talking about regulating these fallacies, which is really concerning to me. As it should be. Those of us who have been privileged in our careers, and I use that work on purpose, I have been very privileged in my career to be experienced in virtually every part of the ecosystem. You know, I, I started out as a basic model organism geneticist, I'm trained as a, as a human neurologist. I became a drug developer, but I've also worked as a doctor in walk-in clinics. I've worked in, in community hospitals. I've worked in uh, rural medicine in, in Alaska and in Africa, looking at the problems of, of intervention delivery. How do they actually get to people who need them? But very few people have the privilege that I and a few others have had 
to, to have this broad ecosystem view. And so we are, unfortunately, just a small number of people who know what the elephant looks like. Uh, most people are dealing with the, the tail or the, you know, the analogy. Sure, the, blind person touching. You know, the whole world is a foot or the whole world is a tail or the whole <laughs> world is a trunk. And you cannot convince those people that there is an elephant there or the elephant has a tail. And so to the degree that speaking the truth about this, I think we have an obligation to do. It often gets interpreted as polemic or political spin of one sort or another. But as your study showed, you're dealing with facts and facts contrary to public opinion uh, <laughs> or Twitter. still do exist. <laughs> and, and, and there also is this really corrosive culture in this ecosystem, which mirrors the corrosive culture that we see in other parts of our society of finger pointing and blaming and accusing yeah. and and going beyond disagreeing and vilifying the very humanity of the people that you're talking to. And we've seen this happen with people in pharma. Very few times it goes the other direction, you know, where an academic will be called those kinds of things. But and that comes from, in my view, at least, uh, and maybe I'm just an optimist. I, I am an optimist. <laughs> it comes from ignorance. Yeah. It really comes from ignorance. You know, almost all prejudice does. It comes from ignorance. And, and when you isolate these communities, and in this case, we're talking about public sector and private sector, human beings have an amazing ability to demonize each other. So those of us who are bilingual or have been privileged to be in multiple places, have an obligation, I think, to try to educate, that's a terrible word because it, yeah. sounds, it sounds paternalistic, but to help our colleagues understand what the realities are because it's desperately needed because as you point out, as we're seeing in so many other aspects of our society, if it's possible to take action on this ignorance, and that's really what it is, then there are all kinds of unintended consequences that neither side wants. And so is this solution, uh, this, this kind of, you know, shuttle diplomacy, you know, yeah. I don't know, but I think I have an obligation to do that. You have an obligation to do this. All of us who just want to get treatments to patients who desperately need them. 90% of human diseases have no FDA-approved effective treatment. 90%. Yeah. I, I deal with parents all the time who are in, and family members and people who I know we could do better by. But the system is so dysfunctional that they suffer from our dysfunction and our fractiousness. They're the ones who pay the price because they and their children die. And I think that is scientifically, medically, and yes, morally unacceptable. And, and I know one of the things we were going to talk about was, was what happened in COVID. Yeah. Look how fast that happened. Six months. They knew they had a working vaccine in six months, and then they went to the FDA. Incredible. Why did it happen? And this happened across the ecosystem, not just in vaccines, because I was involved in this at the highest level at NIH from the very beginning. And it was a wonder to bold. As somebody who has been arguing for collaborating, not arguing, advocating for, for teamwork, for working together for recognizing the contributions of diverse, there's that word, diverse teams. It's very hard to get people to work together because they're so fractious. In this case, I had people, my phone, metaphorical phone, otherwise known as my email account, was <laughs> ringing off the hook of people who were asking me how they could work together. Sure, People I had been banging heads for, for years, all of a sudden. So why? What happened? The answer is urgency. Everyone felt the possibility of imminent death. Everybody. That conveys, imbues everyone with a sense of urgency that they didn't have before. That urgency transforms into a variation in their risk-benefit tolerance. Collaboration is risk. But if the benefit is you stay alive, you're willing to do that. And what's interesting is people did it spontaneously. I didn't have to suggest that they came out of the woodwork to work together. So across NIH, across universities, across companies, public, private, everybody's working together to do this. And there are lessons there. Part of the lesson, I think, and if we look at the companies that were successful, yes, AstraZeneca and Oxford had their technology. That's great. But if you look at J&J, &J, you look at Pfizer, you look at Moderna, yeah. the mRNA. Yeah. 
that came out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. One thing, one tidbit out of the, out of the back end of all of this, which I think has gone overlooked, which I think is really important to point out, Oxford mm-hmm. spun it out to the Nasdaq. They didn't spin it out to the London Stock Exchange. This they didn't spin that. it out. They didn't spin it out to the Deutsche Borsa. They spun it out to the U.S. stock market. Eighty percent of all biotech assets over the last five years have been acquired yeah. and moved to the United States when they were mm-hmm. mature. Yep. How dominant is the U.S. right now compared to the rest of the world? And two, how important was this little thing called Baidol to be able to commercialize mm. government-funded technology that then emerged out of NIH? Mm. So there's a lot of opinions about Baidol, as you know. But sure. my opinion is that it was critical. It, it was absolutely critical. It recognized the importance of intellectual property and its proper management and it recognized the mutually dependent and virtuous relationship between public sector and private sector. Everything we've been talking about today, Everything. basically. And court was correlated with, at least, and you know, it's hard to assign absolute causation, but correlated with an explosion in company formation, capital formation, and the kind of miracles that we're seeing now and started at the same time. So, yeah, I think it's, it was absolutely critical. It's been painful for me to, I must tell you, to to hear some people talk about marching rights as something that was intended as a method of price control. It's very clear that was never the intent of the writers. You know, Joe Allen, who you may know is one of the staffers of the congressional team that did this at the time, uh, he was there. And he said, this was not the intent at all. But even beyond that, to think that march in on a single patent from NIH is going to solve the pricing problem is as close to delusional thinking. It's a flight of fancy. It's it's not based on knowledge, on fact. It simply is a, it's an inaccurate conception. It's trying to solve a market problem by manipulating a part of the IP system. You know, if you want to solve the market problem, Put on price controls, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that's what you want to do. You know, Richard <laughs> Nixon tried that and it didn't work so well. But it would be like saying, well, we're going to make gasoline prices go down by the government marching in on oil exploration IP. What? And yet we're having these conversations around compulsory licensing under the WTO in Europe all the time. Of course we are. Well, it's been interesting talking with Nubar Afian about this, who who was the head of flagship, as you know, and now my boss. <laughs> uh, and he was not born and brought up in this country, as, as you probably know. Uh, and he's very proud of that, of being a first-generation immigrant and has formed this amazing company. And he says all the time, this could never be done anywhere else. And he was one of the co-founders of Moderna, and it's still the head of their board. And because he comes from less well-off parts of the world, you know, he feels this need personally and is very committed to it, which is why Moderna, from the very beginning, said they're, they're not going to enforce their patents in a large number of countries in the world. Uh, they did it on purpose. But he also is very thoughtful about what this kind of march in on the IR, if you want to call it that, or a compulsory licensing of the IP of the mRNA vaccines would do. The source of the problem is not the IP. The source is having a factory in country which can produce reliably this vaccine and have it do it in a timely way to be able to, to treat COVID. And the fact is, if you if you started today to build such a factory and you had every resource you wanted, it would take you a year and a half, two years. And a half billion dollars to a billion dollars. Exactly. Yeah. So again, if, if you don't have the map where drugs come from in your head, you will think simplistically about where the solutions come from. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a wonderful map that my colleagues and I at the National Academy of Medicine at the Drug Forum put together. We published it a few years ago, but but to counteract the Chevron model, which everybody knows. Uh, and this was three people from pharma, a couple people from government, a couple academics, patient advocates. And we all came together to say, what does this map actually look like? And it is a god-awful mess. It looks like the <laughs> board game from hell, you know, with recursive loops, whirlpools you never get out of. And we use that to educate our colleagues about what exactly they're dealing with. To get back to the NIH public sector issue, in that map, NIH is in the top left one-eighth, and then in pieces of the lower left corner. 
Everything else happens in the in the private sector for the most part. And so it's very useful to show people and they look at these words and they have no idea what the words are. Yeah. And they say, hmm, maybe I don't know everything after all. It's very salutary. But again, the number of people who have had that eureka moment where, gosh, as Shelley said, the more I learn, the more I discover my ignorance. We need to have people get to that level where they ask more questions than they make statements. They need to go from declarative to interrogative. Sure. <laughs> Whether we can make that happen in our culture Gosh, I don't know. But again, I'm an optimist and I think we have to try. The next generation of therapies and diagnostics depend on it. And for heaven's sake, the public is relying on us to get this right. Based on that, if you could make one change immediately today and get this through the Congress and have it implemented as law, what one change would you like to see happen? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well... I'm going to, I'm going to take the, the, uh, the interviewee's prerogative here and give you two answers. Absolutely fine. <laughs> what I would really love, which is impossible, is to have a brain chip inserted into every, every member of Congress and the administration <laughs> with knowledge of how drugs are made. Inculcate that knowledge. Vulcan mind meld. That would do more. As in so many things in our society, you know, understanding what you don't know, looking at it from the other person's point of view, that's what's necessary here. And knowledge is really necessary. You know, the human brain can be really impervious to new information. So, but that one's probably impossible. <laughs> what I think is possible is something we haven't talked too much about today. It was the secret of the recovery trial in the UK during COVID. You may know that the NIH and the uh, U.S. government in general spent a huge amount of money on, on therapeutics, trying to find drugs, as they should have. But the clinical trial system we have in this country is archaic and unproductive at best. It does certain things really well. This kind of thing, it doesn't do well at all. And, and so most of the discoveries you'll notice about uh, what works in COVID uh, came out of that one study in the U.K. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, the cost per patient I had the, decided to be um, indelicate <laughs> on a seminar by one of the PIs and asked him, what was the cost per patient? You're probably aware that the cost per patient in clinical trials in this country is somewhere routinely between $10,000 and $100,000 per patient. So let's just call it $25,000 a patient. And we still didn't get recruitment. We still didn't get the answers in most cases. The UK trial started and completed for $250 a person. This is not subtle, folks. <laughs> you know, it's 1%. Now, you can't answer all questions. You know, immediately people say, oh, you're generalizing and you're a, an intellectual Visigoth because you're, <laughs> of course, I'm simplifying. But my point is, uh, another country who I think we can say is pretty well developed, knows what they're doing, did the kind of thing that we want to do for 1% of the cost in one-tenth the time and smoked us, just not even close. I've asked the people who did this, why is this possible? Well, part of it is that they have a national health service. But, you know, we have Medicare and Medicaid, which is as close as it gets. And, and you have a requirement for the NHS. If you're going to be employed by the NHS, research is in your contract. So every practitioner, even at a little village in rural England, is doing clinical research. How cool is that? That's real world evidence right there. It's not some specialized hothouse in, you know, in London. It's real people. <laughs> now, granted, if you're going to do a lot of kinds of trials, you want the hothouse. For things like COVID, and this is true for many, 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 many applications, what you want is a system which will immediately, by design, capture the wonderful diversity of this country in people, in locations, in lifestyles, and all those things. Just like in England, they, there is a system to do that. And it's a very simple thing. Require everybody and compensate as part of the National Health Service to do research. The second thing that led to was, was they said, well, gosh, you know, if we have to do research as part of the NHS, you got to connect us to the grid, some kind of research grid, so that we can all work together and input data and get communicated with. So... They created one. It's a clinical trial version of a, of a telephone system, what we would call an informatics clinical trial management system. And so that allowed them 
to do the kind of study that all of us want to get done. Now, in this country, I ran three of these clinical trials myself at NCATS. Again, wonderful colleagues in academic centers all over the country. Boy, were they committed. They, they really wanted to help. They were working night and day to recruit patients and get them into these clinical trials. But what, not only was the cost you know, 100 times higher, we simply couldn't recruit for the patients because we didn't have research capacity anywhere outside the big academic health center. Sure. Actually, where most of the recruitment came from in the end was those big academic health centers going out to some of their satellite places and establishing kind of a MASH unit. And the wonderful thing is everybody wanted to do this. The academic people wanted to do it. The community health centers wanted to do it. But there were active financial and professional incentives which prevented people from doing what they knew would be beneficial. And my heavens, we can we can fix that as a country. So so that that's my answer. Chris, it's been truly a pleasure. I'm sure we could talk for another several hours, but unfortunately. Yes, exactly <laughs> indeed. But really, wonderful time. And I wish you all success at Flagship. Look forward to doing this again once I've been at Flagship for another year. And I can tell you how it's really like <laughs> on the dark side. Have, have a good afternoon. Okay. Thanks, Ray. Take care.